This is the second lesson in our series on the Lamb throughout the Bible. Uh, you may remember the structure of this series being uh, as we look through not just the New Testament stories about the Lamb, but as we're looking at the Lamb as a concept throughout the entire Bible. We talked about on, well, when was that? Several weeks ago, in the first week of this series, we talked about the types and anti-types, the shadows of the true realities in Hebrews, right? The things that many of, not all of them, I want to make this clear, not all of the stuff in the Old Testament is a type or an anti-type or a shadow. But in this particular one, I think it is that all of these stories of the lamb, or a lamb, not the lamb, in the Old Testament, they give some illumination, they are some uh, a pattern of looking at of course, the Lamb. And we, with the name of this series, the title of this series is from John 1, 29. The next day he, that is John, saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. This is a prophetic image. Behold the Lamb of God. When he says that to the people of his day, that has a particular connotation to them because of the Old Testament stories of lambs, of when were they used, what was the significance. This is a type slash anti-type of the kind that we would think about the Hebrew author writing about. And so as we go through this series, the question, what do we learn about the true reality from the Old Testament stories, the shadows, as the Hebrew writer says, of the true realities? What do we learn about Jesus from these Old Testament stories what do they show us about who he is as the Lamb? And of course, this we're going to conclude with this way in the future, the image of the Lamb in Revelation. This is all building toward in Revelation, the image of the Lamb victorious, the Lamb who was slain. So we begin in antiquity. This is the first of our stories that we'll be looking at. Long before the Passover Lamb, a lot of this is tied up in the Passover, but it really begins before the Passover, long before the Passover, in the call of Abram. Abram, who would eventually become Abraham, right? In Genesis 12, we're not going to read all this, that would be ridiculous. In Genesis 12, we have God's initial contact with Abram, go to the land that I will show you. In Genesis 14, we have Abram blessed by Melchizedek, and Melchizedek is another one of those uh, types, anti-types, shadows, things that the Hebrew writer talks about in Hebrews chapter 7, right? So he, Abram is the one who, eventually, who uh, originally interacts with Melchizedek. There's the first account of the covenant in Genesis 15, where God institutes this future promise for Abraham and the covenant that he makes about the, the blessing that you'll all, uh, you'll have descendants like the sand of this, uh, the shore and the stars in the sky. And then Genesis 16, Abram's like, well, how's that going to happen, God? That's not going to work out really well because Sarah's super old. So he has this dalliance, this, uh, this situation with Hagar in Genesis 16. And then the second account of the covenant in Genesis 17. There's a reiteration of this covenant and what God is intending to do to Abraham. And then, of course, in Genesis 21, there's the birth of Isaac. And one of the things as you go through this story, the, the, the foundation of the promise is built on a couple of things. Number one is the land promise, right? He's going to go to the land that I will show you. I'll make you a great nation. And that gives us to the second thing is the nation promise. So we have the land promise. We have the nation promise. And the nation promise was wrapped up in that he'll have a son. He'll have an heir, even though he's old and advanced in age, and Sarah's old and advanced in age. That's the whole deal with Hagar. And that is the foundation of the story here as we come to Genesis 22, 
He's finally had the son, the child of promise with Sarah, the child through whom he imagines the things that God has promised in this covenant will come to pass. That's the significance of what God is asking in Genesis 22. One of the foundational stories of this lamb imagery. Now, I think I mistakenly said last week. Well, I didn't say mistakenly. I said uh, incompletely. Uh, the first instance of the word lamb. It's just very easy to do. You just Google, not Google. You type in a Bible program, lamb. This is the first instance of the word lamb. However, I do believe there is an allusion to a lamb, a baby sheep earlier than this, which we'll talk about tonight. But this is the, the, the initial place of this imagery. Genesis 22, 1 through 4. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, uh, Abraham, he changed his name at some point during the story, right? In one of the two instances when he tells him the covenant. He said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And, and notice he is really, he's really hammering the point home. Your son, that's one. Your only son, that's another emphasis, whom you love, third emphasis on the importance of Isaac to Abraham, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him. This is servants, right? His son and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw that place from afar. A couple of things stand out about this story. First of all, three days of travel, stewing in the sacrifice to come. He's traveling with these two guys. He's traveling with his son Isaac. For three days, he has to think about the thing that God has asked him to do. And I don't know about you, but I imagine that his stress level only builds over the three days as he is with his son, and they're traveling, and they're going, and he has to do this thing, this thing that God has asked him to do. And I, I wonder at what, at what points in the, the traveling, as he's thinking about the thing that he's going to do, how close he got to just, ah, let's pack it up and go home. <laughs> we're, we're not going to do this. Verse 5, Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. And I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and they both went together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, Father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And I, Abraham said, The God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them. Together. Immediately we see what the lamb, both metaphorically and literally, of course literally in the story here, but metaphorically in throughout the Bible stories, metaphorically and literally signifies sacrifice. The lamb is a signpost in Bible stories of sacrifice. What are we willing to give up for God? What constitutes a worthy sacrifice to him? It's interesting the way that he phrases this. Stay here with the donkey and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back to you. That's what they were doing. This idea of sacrificing to God was an act of worship in sacrifice. We can infer from this story, it's not ever explicitly stated, that Abraham and his family were in the habit of sacrificing lambs. We can infer that because Isaac, who is a child, understood that to offer a sacrifice required a lamb. 
At some point in the three days, he said, why are we going? Dad, where are we going? Dad, where are we going? Oh, it's just an incessant thing, right? Are we there yet? I don't know if, they, I don't know if kids did that back then. Probably, though, because kids are kids. He knew, even at this age, wait, Abe, wait, Dad, we need a lamb if we're going to sacrifice. Come on, Dad, where's the lamb? And this had been, obviously, built into their habits as a family, that he would know that, that he would understand that, that he would understand the situation. Why and where would they have learned to do this? And this is, the, I think, the allusion to lamb sacrifices earlier on, although it's not explicitly stated in Genesis 4 that Abel does offer a lamb. What does it say? In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And we can think about that, okay, the firstborn of his flock, technically maybe not a lamb, probably a lamb, though. I don't know how long it takes for lambs, or for, yeah, for lambs to grow into adult sheep. But the longer you go, the harder it is to keep track of who the firstborn is, right? Probably if he knows who the firstborn is, it's because it's relatively uh, newly born. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry. His face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well. Will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. The second thing, as we think about the lamb throughout the Bible, number one, sacrifice. Number two, acceptance. Who can be accepted by God? And who, I oh, should say it differently, whose worship will God accept? In the first story in, in Genesis 4, we see what? There's a, a lack of acceptance that Cain is struggling with. His sacrifice was not good enough. And the text does not go into specifics about why that is exactly. But we see this early on, that there is an expectation that a sacrifice might be unacceptable. That there are some kinds of sacrifices that are not good enough for God. Even though we have to infer that here. And one of the interesting things about Genesis 4, Genesis 22, there's no explicit statement in the text that God told them to start offering lambs, but he told them to start doing this. We have to infer at this point that there are, is clearly more to the relationships between God and humans in the Old Testament than is explicitly stated in the text. Why would Cain and Abel have ever started offering any sacrifices in the first place? Okay, They, they come out of the garden. Adam and Eve come out of the garden. They start having kids. At what point do they start offering sacrifices? And why do they start offering sacrifices? Well, it's only two options, really. Either they just sort of came up with that on their own, or at some point God told them to do that. Again, we're not told in the text. We're having to infer this. But Abel's offer of the firstborn of the flock instead of a random sheep is significant to us. As we think about, again, the concept of a worthy sacrifice that for it to be valuable meant it had to be valuable. The sacrifice itself had to be given of something that itself had value outside of the sacrifice. And so we come back to Genesis 22 as we think about these, this, the idea of a lamb sacrifice, of a sacrifice really from the beginning in Genesis 4, coming back into Genesis 22. One of the foundational stories, not just for the idea of the lamb, but really for the Christian faith in general. Romans 4, 16, and then 20 through 25. I'll take this opportunity to plug on Thursday nights. We're studying Romans. Uh, of course, we're way past this now. We're going to start Romans 9 on Thursday. This is at the Reams house. These are these people right here. Wave your hands, Reams. 
if you want to talk to them about where they live, you can come have a Bible study with us on Thursdays at 6.30. Romans 4, verse 16. This is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but to the one who shares in the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours. This is for us to understand. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The Hebrew writer, I think, says it this way in Hebrews chapter 11. We talked about this morning in Hebrews 11, not this story, but that Abraham was willing to do this because he believed that even if he did offer Isaac, God could just raise him up again. The belief in the power of God to raise the dead was fundamental to Abraham's actions in this story. His belief that God was able to do what he had promised. Which is interesting because we already alluded to the story of Hagar. God says, I'll make you a great nation. Abraham, at the very beginning, is like, eh, I don't know how that's going to work. Sarah, you're too old. Hey, what, what, Sarah, actually, Sarah is the one, really. But Abraham, of course, goes along with this, has a child by Hagar. He did, I don't know, wavering, or maybe he just thought, I, God can do it, but I, I got to take it on myself to figure out how to make that happen. But over time, I think Abraham has learned not to question, not to presume, to let God work in his way. And so we come back to the story in Genesis 22, verse 9. When they came to the place where God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac, his son. At what point do you think Isaac figures out what's going on? I, am, I struggle... I struggle to conceive of this kind of faith. To bind my son... To raise the knife. Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. This is why he's the father and I'm not. Abraham, right? Why he's the father of faith? I'm not sure I could do it. We all like to think we could. Man, I don't know. At what point does he commit? The point of the story is, of course, that he does commit. That God waits until his decision has been made. There's a moment, of course, you think about the mechanics of raising a knife. There's a moment at the apex where his muscles begin to bring the knife down that he has committed in his mind to do the thing. I don't know how the angel called to him and stopped him at the moment. Abraham, Abraham, he said, here I am. I want you to note the parallel between the father and the son. Let's go way back here. Should have had this repeated instead of this. As Isaac is going with his father, my father, here I am. And then God calling out to Abraham, what does he say? Oh, well, now I've got to go way back. 
And the Lord says to Abraham, and he said, here I am. The willingness to accept what our father is doing. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. It's a little bit weird. This is one of the more interesting things about the Bible story. Being framed from the perspective of limitation. It's not like God didn't know ahead of time. Right? It's not like God didn't know. He knew. If he is omniscient, he knew that Abraham would do this before Abraham existed. Right? If he's omniscient, he knew that. This idea, now I know that you fear God, seeing that you're not you hold if you were son. It's not that God needed to know it. Who needed to know it? Abraham needed to know it. That he would make this choice. Isaac needed to know it. That Isaac was less important than God to Abraham. The people of Israel, everyone who would read this story in perpetuity, here we are, 4,000 years later, we needed to know it. That he feared God and would not have withheld anything. Because we, as we read in Romans, are supposed to follow in the faith of Abraham. This is what it looks like. Now we get to the lamb. Genesis 22, verse 13. Abraham lifted his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught by the thicket in the horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. It's interesting to me, it's not actually a lamb, it's a ram, right? But they were thinking of it in the way they're going on the story. Isaac says, where's the lamb? How, where's the thing we're going to offer? And, and God, Abraham says, the Lord will provide. It's interesting, the Lord doesn't provide exactly in the way that they were thinking about, as he so often does, right? Does not provide according to our expectations. What are we meant to take away from the story in the specific application of learning about the lamb of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, but more generally regarding our faith? As we stated first, the first lesson from the story. We see what real faith looks like. Believing that one way or another, one way or another, and Abraham, he's going up the mountain three days again, right? Abraham, Isaac eventually asks him, where's the lamb? And Abraham's response, and it's impossible to know, of course, how Abraham is thinking in the moment. But Abraham's response to Isaac, don't worry, I'm implying that, right? He doesn't actually say don't worry, but the implication, don't worry, the Lord will provide. He will provide. Now, as Isaac and Abraham are going up the mountain, how does Abraham conceptualize that? The Lord will provide. What, what providence is Abraham expecting there? Well, again, the Hebrew writer says that Abraham is expecting, well, even if I offer him, the Lord will still provide by raising him from the dead. In the story, I think perhaps maybe Abraham is expecting there to be some animal. Of course, he can't see it. And I think about this animal sometimes. Behind him was a ram caught in the thickets by its horns. How did they not see it when they first got up the mountain? I mean, it's not like the ram is probably not quiet. He's like mucking around. My suspicion is God just poofs, creates the lamb out of nothing, or the ram out of nothing. 
Uh, or maybe he just makes Abraham not see it, whatever it is. But this idea of providence that Abraham doesn't exactly understand how the providence is going to take place, but he believes that it's going to happen one way or the other. He believes that it, God will provide. And provide what? Specifically provide a way to fulfill his promise to Abraham. That God will do what he had promised. One way or the other, Abraham believes that the Lord would provide for that promise. The promise that in him all the nation would be blessed. That in him would become a great nation and his descendants. This belief, or I might say lack thereof, will shape everything about our Christian walk. Do you believe the Lord will provide? We talked about this in our Bible class this morning. Why we don't see the same kinds of awesome things happening as we do in the early church or in the Old Testament or in Hebrews 11 is because we don't act like we believe he will provide. We get in the way. Second, we see the shadow of the lamb to come. The Lord provided, not Abraham. The lamb, of course, the ram, right? We're saying lamb because that's what they expected. It was eventually a ram, we understand. Took the place of Isaac. This is the idea of substitutional sacrifice, right? Isaac was the one to die. Not anymore. Now we're going to offer this animal instead. Substituting for the death of another. Unlike this, though, we think about our lamb, Jesus, the sacrifice for us. The sacrifice was only provided after Abraham demonstrated his faith. That's why it's not the true reality. In our reality, God has offered the lamb before we demonstrate our faith. Isn't that the point of Romans 5? While we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. He's offered that already, now, to those who believe and don't believe. And it is up to us then to accept the faith of Abraham for something that has already happened. Unlike Abraham, who was willing to commit before he understood the sacrifice and the substitution. That's what makes his faith so great. And why we inevitably are attempting to have that kind of faith. The faith that believes in the providence before the providence is given. Because the sacrifice here, of course, was only given after he had committed. Finally, we see the power of God's covenants here. That he asks no more of us than he, there's a typo there, than he himself is willing to provide. He offers a, a, a horrible choice to Abraham but it's important to understand that in the outcome of this story, in the we think about the conceptualization of this story, the way it's framed, there's no outcome from God's perspective where Isaac dies. There's only two possibilities. Abraham, go offer your son Isaac. Possibility one, Abraham refuses. Isaac doesn't die because Abraham won't do it. Possibility two, Abraham commits. That's what happens in the story, right? And God intervenes. There's no scenario from God's perspective where Isaac dies. Now, he knows that, but Abraham doesn't. That's what makes Abraham's story so powerful. We think about our perspective. What does he say in Romans 8? We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. The difficulty is, we obviously can't see the providence until, not obviously, we often can't see the providence until after 
like Abraham. God has the plan to provide for you. I'm 100% confident of that. But then when it comes to me stepping out and actually doing it, eh, can I have some evidence first? Can I have some proof about this before I commit to this God? But just like with Abraham, he has the plan for providing for you in place. All that remains is for you to take the act of faith that requires him to do it. For you to act in faith as Abraham did. What was the result of the story for Abraham as we conclude? Genesis twenty-two fifteen, 15, the third iteration then of the covenant between God and Abraham. Each time there's a little bit of variation, uh, em- different emphasis in each case. Genesis uh, 15 and Genesis 17 and Genesis 22 here. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men. They arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba, the end of the chapter here. The promise reiterated once more for Abraham. Because you have done this, let me say it once more. I will bless you beyond your wildest imaginings, Abraham. There's no way Abraham had this in mind. Because who's the real beneficiary of Abraham's faith? Abraham got to benefit. But as we read in Hebrews 11 this morning, something better has been provided for us. We are the beneficiaries of Abraham's faith. We're the ones who reap the benefit. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. His, Paul makes this point in Galatians, singular, Christ, possessing the gate of his enemies. In your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. That's you and I. In this story, we learn, what do we learn? About Jesus, about sacrifice, and about our role. First, To offer a worthy sacrifice, it must have value. Second, there's nothing as valuable as the promise of God. I think somebody, Robin, said it this morning in communion. There's no offering, there's no sacrifice we're going to make that is equivalent to the sacrifice that has already been made. And so whatever it is that God asks of us, we must be willing to say, here I am ready to do what you require. Because we get to have the benefit, the promise that God made to Abraham. As we conclude, we offer the invitation. If you want to participate in the promise of Abraham, we know how that can be accomplished, right? And if you're struggling, you're not sure what your purpose is, you're not sure what God is asking you, well, let's talk about it. What is God asking of you? That's going to be a difficult, difficult question to ask sometimes. But we'd be happy to study it, wouldn't we? I'd be happy to. I know a number of other people would be too. Maybe you need help in some other way. Come while we stand and sing.